are here with Tease Snyder, the mind, the voice, the face behind Conspiracy Synergy. I'm Monica Perez, and we're going on a buddy dive. Tease, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. I have been really enjoying your videos, and I want to know the whole story. I want to know your background, how, where you got your skills, and what you're going for, both with what you're delivering and kind of the big picture purpose of putting all your time and energy into this. Sure. Uh, so I started off as an artist, and that's still how I identify and the central theme of all of the different uh, projects that I do is controversy. I find that art is the medium that allows us to approach controversy in a way in which it's not so painful for us to be able to approach. So a lot of what we're missing when it comes to the most controversial themes of our day, and that very much touches on conspiracy as well, is the ability to look at it through a lens that isn't quite so personal, that allows the sort of, uh, let's say, <sighs> I almost want to say like metaphor, I describe it. It's not a lie. It's kind of like an iris, you know? So some things you need a an iris that's very tight, be able to, to see things clearly and other things you can open it and be much more open uh, to getting struck in the face by that kind of light. And so I was trying to figure out how to use my artistic skill sets and constantly dealing with controversy to then broach into the realm of conspiracy, which I myself have been researching for a good 15 years now and going through the hurdles and the motions of waking up and all that goes with that. And so my big picture accomplishment that I want to try and get out of creating the show is to uh, create a quick, concise, welcoming, emotionally palatable uh, presentation that itself encapsulates the whole of the alternative media and the entire conspiratorial realm so that I can get people interested enough to then take the deep dive themselves, because otherwise they might feel a little bit uh, discouraged from the idea of, of doing what we do at all let alone as deeply as we've gone. It's very entertaining. I love the style. I love the pace. I love that, first of all, it's very important to be able to listen to something without watching it. So I try that too. But I also, in watching it, the imagery or the images that you throw up there, it's funny because the pacing is fast, but when you're talking, it's totally manageable. Like I imagine for a newbie, it would be totally absorbable. But for me, I'm familiar with probably every image that, you know, maybe you'll throw a hundred images up on the thing. I'm familiar with all of them. And then I get the connection. So it's almost like it's, it's operating on a couple of different levels, but all the while being very entertaining. So I do, I really enjoyed it. So I also though, in my, um, in listening to you, and and you did touch on, I was just telling you before we went live that I was going to try to do a game of like 10 words and do free association for each words. So as I was watching your stuff, I was like writing down the different things that I, I would like to know, like you, what your reaction to that your videos stimulated in me. And I ended up with a list of 50 things. So we can't get to all of them, but all together, all that stuff together made me wonder what you think about the very big picture, like what is the true nature of power in the world or in the universe or both, just for starters? That's just my first question. 
Okay. So true nature of power. If you get down to it, it's uh, axiomatic divide at the core of existence, which is between love and fear. That's the force of involution and evolution. And when you ascend through consciousness, you stack on top of love and fear, which is basically you're still an animal. You can feel love or fear. But as you go up in consciousness, the objective distinction between right and wrong then becomes a necessary precursor to being able to continue to ascend. So a lot of what uh, you bring to or I'm trying to bring forward with the show is a deeper understanding from the very like base consciousness level all the way up to the furthest ascension that we've been able to gather from um, any number of esoteric studies not religions as they exactly are uh, but more just a lot of the things that are kind of hidden from our day-to-day conversations because so much of this is about occulting what's real and directing our focus in the things that make us feel a particular way and then we go out there and we're constantly at each other's throats so yeah so me it's yeah, I think that takes care. Uh, I think that gives some insight into personal power, individual power. But there are the powers that be, so to speak, the parasites that be who, I mean, maybe you think that this is just perceptive and not real, but it seems to me they set out to, let's say, do everything that was involved with COVID. They, they okay. anticipated it and they pushed that down on us. And it seemed like a purely through psychological means they affected that. Now that's a kind of power that seems to be more sophisticated than what I can tap into as an individual. What do you think's going on there? I think that, um, so a lot of this has to do with language. Uh, I think that when you get into that realm, it, can be described as sorcery. It is the utilizing of convergent means in order to almost cast a spell on or a propagandization that's applied to a broad, let's say, um, let's just say all of civilization at this point, because that's where we're at. So when you pull that off, it's the gradual process of seeing people become their own oppressors. And so it's the habitual entrainment over time and the methodological means by which that's applied to individuals using the philosophy of cybernetics such that they can then be arranged within subsets and larger groupings that are indistinguishable from the way in which they themselves were abused. And so it's it's the parasitic mindset that creates within us the abusers as a byproduct of how they abuse us. What does cybernetics mean exactly again? Cybernetics, I think it's uh, derived from the Greek kybernetes, which is basically, I describe it as um, kind of a philosophy of, it's the midpoint between technology and psychology. So it's turning people into the machine. Interesting. Um, Okay, so we're talking, so you just touched on things like trauma and sorcery and, um, but you've also touched on, I think in your most recent episode, the operation of secret societies. I think you had a, a host of things there, and I could add some too, from masonry, yeah. the Vatican, Zionism, Illuminati, I would throw in Skull and Bones, Bohemian Grove. Uh, there's just, and but, the, but a lot of them seem to have like ritualistic, mythical, or not necessarily mythical, but religious you know, occult, occult, in, in, occult feels like it means spiritual. It just means hidden. It just means yeah. secret. But somehow occultism also feels like it's related to cult and culture. And it may or may not be etymologically. I don't think they're all from the same root, although you would think they would be. But it's, it seems like that also has, A, it has self-awareness to have secret societies that have plans. That's self-aware. There's also elements to their rituals that I think serve at, at least two and maybe three purposes. 
One would be that it serves to establish the hierarchy within the, the secret society, but also to get admiration, obedience, awe, whatever it takes, power in the outside society that looks at that as that the top. But then there's also the possibility that they believe it has real power. And I guess there's a fourth possibility that it actually has real power. So you've got, you know, you've got individuals acting out of trauma and uh, exercising sorcery and stuff. But now we have this, you know, they're, they're aware of it because they're in secret societies. They, they, they communicate in words and stuff. So they're actually, there's definitely a conscious level thing. What's going on there? Do you think it has real power? What do you think is going on there? Oh, yeah. So that's what I was alluding to before when I was talking about the axiomatic divide at the core of existence, which is love and fear. And that's a force inherent to nature. And the way in which you go about orienting your philosophical understanding disposition, which then brings about the actions that you take in life, is all predicated on the fractal nature of those philosophical kind of points of origin. So if you're occulting that from someone, you're able to turn down the lights and you amp up the degree to which darkness reigns. And so it is those reigns that are put upon us as people that are entrained in our brains such that we become the dissemination of the darkness rather than the light. And so it very much is a refined calculative occult science, not simply the hiding of things, but the understanding of how when you put those environments on people, they hide from the light. And so that's what I mean when it's the the entraining process of turning us into our own abusers. Because then they don't have to do anything. We do it to ourselves. Do you think that, um, do you ever think about Francis Bacon? I have a friend, Bob, who does the Hidden Life is Best podcast. And he traces a lot of the stuff back to Bacon, who he says is the smartest human being who ever lived. That's a pretty bold statement. But it sounds like a lot of what you're saying goes back to him really thinking it through and maybe establishing more than one secret society. I can't remember. Well, but I'm not, yeah, oh, very good. Yeah, you, I just the, the bacon thing. I wonder if that came up, and when you look into some of this, like maybe the origins of secret societies, if you've ever stumbled upon that as a thread to pull on. Well, I'm not well enough acquainted with Francis Bacon myself. I, I definitely will uh, t- make a point of going into it further. Insofar as how a lot of this works, it really is the tracing it back to see like the precursor to the monotheistic religions or astrotheological cults, which in essence have the same underlying dispositional mechanisms that reign over the population at large. They were arguably infiltrated by a fifth column from long preceding that by the old religion. And so it's really just this way, 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 way back, holy crap. And then you narrow it down and it's nothing other than freedom versus slavery. And it's us trying to figure out what is moral and how do we take our actions in the real world. And I think I might, as a dilettante hack, say that Bacon took that the next level of religion and, and made it science. Okay. So that's how I would say, like, you're saying that the ancient religion all the way through, and it's all the same, same, same. And I would say all the way through to, you know, believe in the science, like this science oh, yeah. is a religion now. And I think that was him. And I I just think it's hilarious because I just want to change all of that everywhere to instead of faith, believe, trust to just like prove, prove the science. Totally. Totally. (laughs) That's all. Why is that? So why does that make me a hater? (laughs) I don't know. It's the inversion principle. If you're doing the right thing, like there's a great quote from the the West Wing, which was obviously propaganda in its own right. But uh, it's Charlie in like the first season or second season or something saying, if they're shooting at you, you must be doing the right thing. So that's yeah, why you're right. Okay. You're doing the right thing. Yes, yes, exactly. No, I've even gotten t- tired of that because 
I used to be hypersensitive about everything. It's like, don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm like, look, if you're making me like totally saturated with the crap that like, I don't even care what I say or do, you know, I'm sensitive to like real people doing real things, but I just, if I don't care anymore about being hypersensitive to Leah Thomas or whatever, then they've really, they've really gotten to the point. It was like Obamacare. I never did anything socially active or politically active on my own accord ever in my life. And then Obamacare is like, oh crap, like that will tip the US economy over 50% to where people are beholden to a big government. Like I have to do something. This is going too far. It'll be too late. And I don't have any hope, but I can't look my kids in the eye and say, I didn't try because they push me that far. And I feel like they just push, push, push to where I don't even, it's like, ahead. God, call me a hater. Like I got a troll on my new RSS feed, which is deep dives with Monica Perez. And the day that the Roe versus Wade thing came out, somebody gave me a bad review saying, I can't believe you're defending Justice Thomas, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I never mentioned him on this feed. I didn't have time to even respond to the Roe thing. I still, to this minute, haven't read what Thomas wrote about the Roe thing. And I was going to call, I was going to write to Apple and say, this is a troll. And then I was like, you know what? I kind of like it. <laughs> it <got one. laughs> so, so I don't know what he said, but I'm guessing that whatever anybody reading this is not going to be like, oh, I can't listen to this. So yeah. So anyway, I don't care about being a hater anymore. So okay, now how how do these guys? I guess I have two two questions about. So let's say there are people. I'm going to say they're at the top. I, I realize that's a judgment call. Those are judgment words at the top. But let's just say somebody had an idea in conscious reality to have a pandemic that was going to do a bunch of things in reality to their bank accounts and stuff, and they made it happen. And I didn't want them to do that. Do you feel like two questions? Are those guys? Well, it's one, three. It's a multiple choice question. Are those guys motivated by like conventional concepts of money and power? Are they motivated by this um, good and evil occult stuff that's real to them? Or are they motivated by their ego, not just to dominate us, but to to get the respect of their peers, which really would be the only way to feed your own ego? Or maybe it's all of those things. But what do you think is the driver there? Because like I look at 9-11, I look at the video, the visual of the and I'm like, that looks like a black mask to me. Or it could just be an act of war and all those people got drafted. So I'll answer that with a metaphor, and that's typically how I think and how I communicate most of the time. And the metaphor is the, and this is actually something I'm probably going to do at a point in one of my shows later on to illustrate the concept, but imagine Thanksgiving from the perspective of the turkey. Now, it isn't just that you're going to murder them. It's that you're going to murder them, and then you're going to rip all their feathers out, and then you're going to cut them open, and you're going to rip their guts out, and then you're going to go out and take a bunch of stuff that you picked in a field and shove it up the ass of the turkey, and then you're going to throw it in a very hot environment and periodically butter it with the uh, congealed drippings of a cow tit. Now, try describing that to the turkey. He's just going to be like, wait, what? You're going to murder me? Everything past that point <laughs> just seems like utter insanity. Why would you do that? They're cooking with us. 
this is a cooking process. And it, we're not really at the point in a predator-prey environment where you simply go out and grab something and bite into it. You're doing very particular things to it over a prolonged period of time in order to get a very particular product that you want out of it. So what is their motivation? Whatever makes them hungry whatever they enjoy sinking their teeth into, whatever has that particular crackle to its flesh after it's gone through all of these sordid steps in order to bring it into you in the way that you want to integrate it into yourself. So everyone's motivation is a little bit different in the way in which you can't get people to agree on what they want on top of a pizza, but try explaining any of that to the turkey. Okay, so I'm going to take the turkey metaphor a little bit. Turkeys, wild turkeys are disgusting. So you're only talking about domesticated turkeys. So, I mean, they're not just, they're marvelous. They, Ben Franklin wanted it to be the national bird of the, of America. Wild turkey tastes delicious too when you're drinking it as a booze, but you don't want to eat it. I don't think you want to eat it for Thanksgiving. So we're talking about domesticate. So first thing you got to domesticate the turkey. Are we domesticatable? Are we a domesticatable animal or have we just been tamed? Are we tamed person by person, the way you can take a chimpanzee. Well, I don't know if you can take a chimpanzee, but there's some animals that you can merely tame, some that you can domesticate. Well, that's, a, that's a beautiful distinction. Um, the metaphor of Plato's cave is that if you look at closely at the drawings of the people who are in it, the chains are loose and they can take them off at any time. It's that their focus is so transfixed on the glimmers of suggested reality that it takes precedence to the hard reality that they find themselves confronted by. So it's a spectrum. And every one of us falls somewhere on it. But ultimately, nature cannot be tamed. It's the thing that is able to break through those chains by one means or another, this life or the next. And it's a gradual process of awakening until we're able to get those chains off our chest. Do we love them? Do we yeah, love so that, the, the people, the chains, the are yeah. we Stockholm? Such, such a great uh, point. And yes, so many people are in love with because uh, there's a beautiful illustration I saw one time, it was a slave who was painting the chains gold. You know, it's like we, we wear it like it's jewelry so that we can tell ourselves <laughs> that they love us, oh, that kind of thing. So absolutely, that's a huge part of it. I remember when I was young, like an adolescent, and I was, I, I, my environment that I was coming up from, like my dad was a truck driver, was the youngest of nine. And I did really well on standardized tests and I knew that my future was going to be something I didn't understand. Like I, the options that were available to me were just something I, I just was not capable of grasping. And I was pretty bad at it in the beginning. It's down to like, I didn't know how to dress. I was very rude. It was like a behavior problem, you know, but I, I had that, that thing that I knew I could exploit and I didn't know how to exploit it. And when I thought about, well, I could do anything like I could, my computer science teacher told me to go into computer science. I, um, some engineering person asked me to go into engineering. The banker, I, when I, I was a waitress and the dentist would ask me to be his receptionist. Like I just didn't know what to do. And I remember saying many times, cause it gave me terrible anxiety that I just wish sometimes that we didn't have freedom. Cause my father would have me watch Milton Friedman on Sundays, free to choose. And I was just like, Oh, I can't take it, man. I can't. I do not want to <laughs> deliver me from uh, deliver this cross for me. So yeah. I just I didn't like the freedom. I didn't like the freedom. And it really has taken a lot of like mental discipline to to order the chaos in my mind and stay focused and accept the burdens of freedom. And I I wonder if it, I mean, these kids these days have so much more anxiety than I had probably. And I 
I wonder if it's like literally just so much, so much stimulation, so many options, even to the point where they're not even directed to think about practical things. Like I, I had a friend in law school who won a lawsuit because Citibank was discriminating against students, uh, wouldn't give students who had a poor chance of repaying the credit cards, credit cards. So if you were a jazz major and you were on financial aid, they weren't giving you a credit card. And I was like, that makes perfect sense. That's great. That's just a natural way to direct where you really should be focusing. And she's like, that's outrageous. I'm like, okay, but you should not tell poor kids. They can be jazz majors. They're going to find out in a couple of years. That was a bad idea. And, uh, and I just feel like, you know, an excess of freedom can be overwhelming. And I, I imagine that's why people like the chains. Please tell me, Dr. Fauci, please tell me what to do. I just, I need to trust you. Yeah. So that's sort of like, uh, I don't know if it's the freedom so much as it is a sense of direction. And a lot of people feel as if they need a sense of direction because they've been so rigidly directed every step of their lives. So for those who have been oppressed, freedom feels as if it's chains. And for those of us who desire liberation, can't stand for everything to stay the same. Wow. That's a great, great point. Because I have to say, as when then I had teenagers, I remember thinking like, I can, I can walk any path. Like I have the strength to walk any path or like I used to say when I ended up. So this crazy journey of freedom went from dropping out of high school to going to community college to transferring to Harvard. And when I got to Harvard, it was such a dramatic experience that I was absolutely not prepared for. But I was not leaving. So I used to have this expression. I'm not leaving till they carry me out on a stretcher. <laughs> So like that was my mantra for a really long time. And then I had teenagers and I was like, I can't just sit here and not leave till I get carried out on a stretcher. Like I need to know how to navigate this path. And I remember like the only prayer, I think I finally went and started <laughs> praying again for <laughs> teenagers. My only prayer was like, I can walk any path. I'm not asking you to take this cross for me. I'm just asking to see the path. I just want direction. I just want to know that I'm walking on the right path. And it's it's difficult. It is really difficult because we put so much energy into things that we're doing that, you know, and I think we've been trained, especially Americans, to be hyper productive, hyper efficient, really diligent, get up in the morning. I mean, what do you think Starbucks was? Starbucks was like when Coke was going out of style. Starbucks was just like have five cups of coffee every day and work 15 hours. Like you, we really work hard. But there's a, an expression about management. If you have somebody who's clever but lazy, they should be in command. If you have someone clever and really hardworking, like they should be in a high staff position. If you have someone stupid and lazy, like you could just put them anywhere. It doesn't matter. But if you have someone stupid and diligent, you have to fire them immediately. Because walking down, you know, working really hard on the wrong thing in the wrong way can cause a lot of damage. So direction is important. And the responsibility for that, especially if you have the energy, it's like what STEM and STEAM I remember Charlotte Ezerbeet, I think is how you pronounce her name. She was on Alex Jones, and her, she was the one who gave her father's skull and bones um, directory to the public. I think she gave it to Alex Jones, so then everybody knew who was in skull and bones. And she was in the Department of Education back in the day, and she said STEAM and STEM, I don't think STEAM was a thing then, but science, technology, engineering, and math as like the new wave of how schools are structured, charter schools and stuff. She said it's a way of of excising from people their ability 
to um, to, to understand civics, to understand it's how I it's, it goes hand in hand with my thing about liberal arts. Like the liberal arts were only allowed to free men because the Greek slaves who worked for the Romans were smarter than the Romans, and they were not permitted to have the concept of of civics, of history, of language, of rhetoric, of all the things that the masters would have or the freemen. And so, so she would say like, you don't want people to have that full understanding of all of that stuff. So, so they're actually giving us this work ethic. They're giving us the skills. They really quite highly educating us into uh, just being tacticians. It seems like operators and not really fully grasping the big picture. And I think that maybe why it's so hard for us to see the path, to understand the rhetoric. Whereas I saw in one of your videos, you had a John Taylor Gatto book and he was the one who said, you know, you just flashed it on the screen, but he was the one who said that I think like 80% of the senators at that time went to like four or five high schools. He said, it's not college. It's the high schools that teach them like the 14 tenets of how you, how you persuade people, what motivates people. And a friend of mine who's of that ilk said, was the one who pointed out to me, he's like, where I come from, we only care what our peers think. And I was like, wow, interesting. And that gave me a little bit of an insight. But yeah, so if you're directionless, but have a lot of energy and technical skills, it can be dangerous and scary. And and maybe that's one reason why people love those chains. Well, we're, the, we're Greek I'll, slaves. Oh, I agree. I'll throw out my personal hypothesis about the nature of what anxiety is. I see anxiety as an evolutionary precursor to precognition which you can look at uh, for an appropriate metaphor, even if you don't necessarily subscribe to the uh, materialist kind of phenomena that I'm alluding to, would be that of feathers on a dinosaur before a bird takes flight. It seems conceivably as if nature's taken a horribly wrong turn and it's just making you look ridiculous when one minute later you're able to jump off a cliff and be able to take flight. So it's the premise that what is anxiety in us? What does it elicit and what does it connect to? That is the gradual, once again, my own personal hypothesis precursor to our collective precognition. You know something's there, you know something's wrong, but you can't quite figure out what it is and it's driving you crazy. So that's sort of us approaching the cliff before we're able to realize that superpower and take flight. That's great. So do you believe in God? I think it's irrefutable. What terminology you use seems to be what pisses people off. So God, supercomputer, cosmic fart, uh, video game, whatever. There are any number of different kind of things that you can okay. look at. So would you associate, which word would you associate more closely with the concept of God, intelligence or energy? Creativity. Nice. Excellent. So, okay. I want to, I really want to know what you think about a lot of different things. So can I play my game? Check on. Sure. So my game is that I wrote a bunch of words down that you mentioned, said, or flashed across the screen. Okay, the first thing is you talked about templates, and it's what I think of as archetypes. Can you, and I'm happy to tell you what what I'm thinking if I, if you need your memory jogs, but what did you mean, do you recall, by templates and how they're used by, say, the CIA to manipulate us? Yeah, so archetypes you could look at from the Jungian perspective of the things that we embody and elicit over the course of our incarnation here on this earth, whereby templates would in essence be a more simplified simulacrum variant of that same basic concept, such that it's easy for you to attribute your assumptions to it, and then not actually allow that to be congruent with the reality thereof. I love that.
All right. Um, psychology and social control. Who's behind it? Who's got the answers? Do we get the answers? What's going on there? It's so I describe it this way. It's like a school of fish where the school of fish and there are a variety of different predators. They aren't necessarily all in it together, but it is in their best interest to ensure that they maintain a, a hospitable environment for predators to stay on top. And so it's kind of like variety of different sharks in the sea, birds, you know, uh, crashing out of the sky, coming down all at once. It's that kind of environment. So it's it's hectic, but at the same time, as long as you're able to maintain a supremacy of predator over prey, everybody gets their fill except us. Nice. Interesting. Okay. Uh, blockchain and Bitcoin. What's the real purpose of all that? Look at the esoteric. The greatest manifestation of the darkness is the hypercube. What is blockchain? It's a hypercube. What's a hypercube? Hypercube. So What's look a at fractal it, uh, for that matter. Okay, so it's a cube that then. So look at it this way. You have to look at the screen. So it's the cube that continues to like unfold on itself and become the cube from an in over and over and over and over again. It's a prison that you never escape from. And so what blockchain is is in the esoteric. It's one block after another. That's what a hypercube looks like as you're going through it. It is the entrapping of our labor and our focus within a digital realm in order to subvert us under the ostensible guise of it being our liberation. Yeah. People get, people do hate on me for being like, I don't know about Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. What the fungal is smart dust? So the problem is, is that the deep state and continuity of government are approximately 50 years ahead at any given juncture. And that comes to manifest either in advanced technology, which is arguably reverse engineered from divergent timeline beings that we regard as extraterrestrial, or it ties into the esoteric and ancient technology, which is largely suppressed as well. So there's a lot of different things going on when it comes to the future versus the past and orienting what it is we're looking at at any given moment. And smart dust is the culmination of where they're trying to take us in the materialist paradigm, which is in essence to have something that can uh, track every single speck of matter and the products thereof on this earth. And in doing so, make almost everything either influent, something that can be influenced or outright hacked. So it's almost like a matrix overlay and it may, yeah, it may also i imagine interface with the metaverse so that there's almost no you know would be continuity of that too so so that's correct i think that that is in essence a lot of where we have been oriented to put our focus upon the idea that we're going to be living inside of the machine i think it's actually the other way around the machine's going to be living inside of us yeah like uh, allison mcdowell says it's the open air prison it's not that it's a prison it's that when you have to register for your UBI and you have to check the boxes of if you, you know, if you did, if you did your uh, nicotine withdrawal pill today and all that kind of stuff straight out of those Orwellian Orwell books. So, okay. You were just saying whatever you said about the smart dust made me think of crop circles and pyramids. Why? I forget what you said, but now I think it had something ancient in it. Okay, so what it is, is that I found because what I do is a broad canvas of the alternative media community to see which respective echo chambers people have found themselves sort of like corralled into unbeknownst to themselves, that then they double down on insist to it. The reality is, is that 
in an equivalent of the way in which academia has been rigidly compartmentalized, so too have we from our own kind of like gravitas of what we find interesting in one respect or another. So there's a significant distinction between like ancient technology and advanced technology. But a lot of the time people have a tendency to lump everything together so that they don't understand the granular nuance of differentiating and delineating the two. And so what well, the reason that I evoked within you the, the whole crops here, pyramids and uh, sorry, crop cycles and pyramids, it's like that's when you get more into ancient technology. And because of how controlled our grasp of history is, and it's just brutal, like we're not allowed to know how long we've had certain things, how far ahead we actually are, and how much of what's happening in the ascension, descension of consciousness on this planet is actually itself a faculty of a, an occult science that is being practiced on us all time. Yes, uh, I cannot even begin to think of how to get greater insights into that. Maybe I will at some point, but you triggered something to me. Instead of going deeper, I want to get a little more shallow. This <laughs> idea of the alt media echo chamber, that's very fascinating to me because I've only just begun. I used to just think, now everyone's like, you're a fed, you're a fed, you're a fed. Like, I don't even know what a fed is, but like, you know what I mean? It's just, it's beyond that. But in any case, but it's not right. Like these people aren't like Trump might not even know what he is, which is an operative of a kind like he, he might not even know that he'd be. I think they want people who don't know it. But so when you said that there are I call them silos like the alt media, um, not not necessarily alt media, but any echo chamber, any book like I heard somebody interviewed once. I feel like it was Alfred McCoy, but I, I can't swear to that, who said that. The CIA screens all this stuff because it's about the drug trade in Southeast Asia and all that during Vietnam and everything. And they will tell him, like, there's nothing you can't publish, but we're asking you not to publish all this stuff in one thing. So you can talk about Southeast Asia in one thing and you can talk about Freeway Ricky Ross in another, but you cannot put them in the same. So I see those as silos. But I'm not saying the CIA is calling every libertarian podcaster and saying, don't step on this. But I remember being on podcasts where when Trump first came out and I was just like, boy, this is a good one. Huh? And, and they're like, what are you talking about? He's going to save the world. <laughs> like, seriously? <laughs> and, and, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of subscriber money in that. I, I lost subscribers for saying stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you're at the forefront of the deeper realization that the greatest consolidation of they of control they have is the way in which we champion their control for them. And the rigidity or hostility which is evoked from within us the second that we are questioned or backed into a corner reveals how lost in the labyrinth we remain. And that's one of those things where if you champion yourself as a liberator from the labyrinth, you can't very well admit to being caught in it at the exact same time. So it's one of those things where we have a tendency to champion our pride. And in championing our pride, we dig ourselves deeper inside and we're not able to poke our heads out and see the light for what it is. A lot of the time in going through these various different silos, as you call them, we realize that we were mistaken about something that we'd seen one way when actually it goes a lot deeper than that. And that's painful in an environment where we're constantly chastising and lashing out at any person who doesn't get it right. And so it's, it's like almost a hostile environment that doesn't allow things forward that seem to contradict what everyone else is basing their reputation upon. And so there are all these different kind of dynamics that are sort of revolving around one another that see us. Uh, if we're not being lied to, we can lie to ourselves. You know, they're very interchangeable. 
Okay, so I get that. And it becomes, you know, it starts getting towards the black pill, but I'm not going to do that yet. Like the black pill, like everything's <laughs> a waste and fake. Everything is fake. No, but no. Actually, everything that's on a screen, um, do not take at face value. Let's just say that. But no. let me just ask you this specifically, unless you want to react to that. But I have no. to say Please. Okay. So I have always hated reading the news. I could never watch the State of the Union address or whatever. My mother would literally like, she was like, you can't, you can't stand to be in the presence of lies. It's weird. It's like I have celiac or something. I can't have gluten at all. I'm telling you, I can t like basically tell from across the room, like, oh, somebody got gluten on that. Like I can tell. It's <laughs> like, it's like the, you got the, you know, I would later call it truth dar. But awesome. it just can't stand it. And I couldn't. And even when I was an investment banker, like why I really wasn't really great at it is that I couldn't read the newspaper. And they're like, you don't know what's happening in the stock market. I'm like, Ugh, please. <laughs> just, this is your job. So and even when I had a radio show, it was just on Saturdays. So I would only read the newspaper on Fridays or Thursdays, right where I was starting to work on the show. And then I started doing a daily show and I started reading the news every day. And, and that became too much for me. And so now I'm kind of like in the middle somewhere where I do two stories a week and I try to find stories that are really, that seem really important. Like what is the Roe versus Wade thing going about, really about? And then yesterday I did like, um, there, there's all this noise about Roe versus Wade and a shooting in Chicago, but people are not talking about this big gun control bill that came down through Senate with a lot of Republican votes through Congress, Biden signed it. And I mean, do you happen to know, I'm not really asking for an answer, but do you happen to know the three things that were in that bill? The biggest gun legislation in 30 years. I wouldn't think you would know because it's, it's nowhere. It's all about Roe. It's all about shooting. It's all about that. So I, I examined it. Now, do I think that paying attention to that, the th things are red flag laws, the boyfriend loophole and um, background checks for 18, 19 and 20 year olds, which bring juvenile records into the background check system. See, nobody even caught that. Uh, and you wouldn't believe what makes you fail. Oh my gosh. Like if you use marijuana, you're not, in, you're, you will fail a background check. So anyway, it was a good show that I did. Um, and I guess that's useful information for people because it's actually a crime to apply for a gun if you're a prohibited person. So really? it's like if you fail a background check, it's almost tautological that you just committed a felony, you know? Yeah. So so there's a little value there. But sometimes there, you know, how much value, how do you walk the line between saying we're in a silo, we're in an echo chamber, we are... We are operating in their framework, and therefore um, we're reinforcing their framework. And then also say, okay, we are, you know, reality exists. I think, you know, this shit exists. You know, if, if it doesn't, it doesn't, but it doesn't matter to me because it exists to the extent that I'm, you know, I'm not, we haven't made any progress since like Socrates and stuff on some of these big, big questions. I'm not wasting my life with that. I, there's a table in front of me yeah. and I'm going with that. So there's a table in front of me. There are gun laws on the books. You know, what? how much of it is a distraction? How much can you really penetrate into the truth? And, and is it, does it matter? Okay, so it matters tremendously. It matters more than anything, I'd say. And that's why you have that sort of uh, not just 
phobia, but uh, visceral aversion to lies in your midst. Because when you understand what lying is, it's a violation of natural law. So it almost breeds kind of demons or a proliferation of that which is not conducive to the best end. And that's something that elongates and compounds over time until eventually it erupts. So the more lies you allow in your midst, the more that which underlies your very basis of existence is quicksand, and it's going to suck you into it. So when you get down to understanding a lot of what objective truth is and those who insist on standing upon it and standing by it, it is differentiating and delineating between the the framework that has been erected and how it's ultimately not there to house us, it's there to imprison us. And so much of what's going on right now is a fractal iterative process of these very laws of nature. The lies continue to build, they continue to extend, they become more convoluted. They are like the tentacles of the octopus that wrap around all who continue to tolerate them in their midst. And they will get worse and worse and worse and worse until it eventually becomes a death cult in the form of genocide. And that's what we're starting to see unfold on a global scale right now. And the longer in which people permit that around them and so to entertain the notion that they have the capacity to quell the very force of nature, they lend their strength and their energy to it as well. So we need to get real. And that's stepping away from all of the shit that doesn't make us feel like we're in the light of the truth. Can you give me one example of that? Like that you say, what do you think is the most likely trap I fall into where I'm in the darkness, not the light? Uh, not you necessarily, but everyone, it's government. It's it's foundationally immoral. Believing force, right? that there that, should be a monopoly on... Yeah, violence. monopoly on violence, basically. The premise that government is there to protect us rather than to enslave us. It's yes. fundamentally the inverse of the reality. Although, and as long as we continue to permit that, we go crazy. I think I would prefer, I mean, I haven't revisited in a while, but Albert J. Nock and Our Enemy of the State, he does distinguish between government or governance and the state. So like in my house, there's governance. I'm yeah, the governor yeah. of my house for sure. And thank God, because I wasn't for a long time because I'm a libertarian to a fault. And, you know, <laughs> kids will run around naked if you're yeah, not yeah, on top of it. And actually, I didn't even care about that. But babysitters care. So no, there have been moments like, do you know that kid's naked? I'm like, ah, you know, <laughs> he likes it. That, like, no, I don't think that's, so. that's perfect. It's a very important distinction. And, and the language that I use to address the same underlying point is this. We want leaders, not rulers. We cannot allow rulers, but leaders are a very real thing. And as leaders emerge and make themselves known, it not only behooves them, but it behooves us to understand that's a reality. And I would pick another uh, knock point. He said, we'll always have these problems if people think that a job is something to be given. And the way I finally realized what that meant was that like everyone, you could even Kaczynski it and say like everything is... You, you, your job, your work is your autonomy is something that you can assert at any time. Like I can literally go out there. I mean, it is a little tricky if you have very limited land and way too many people and weird laws where the, you know, people reach out from the grave and can control plots of land. And I think that the evil overlords are working on that. But as a general rule, you should be able to grab and minimum wage laws and all that. You should be able to grab a broom and say, hey, buddy, for a peanut butter je and jelly sandwich, I'll sweep your steps. And people probably trade that. And that's you making a job. I would say similarly, this idea when you say like we need leaders, not rulers, I, I would say 
That's true. And anyone can be a leader at any time. And we could all be leaders together. And if we were all leaders, you really wouldn't need any leaders. If everybody was willing to break those chains and, and um, assess their own direction and do it in a way that didn't get a lot of pushback from other people because you were encroaching on their space. You could be that leader of that one little country and there are 7 billion countries or you can make it bigger. And, and, and if you, as long as there's a freedom of travel and association, you can have your 150 person community, or you can have your five person community. I think that's like realistic. I think the idea that you got to there that we're all leaders in our, or that we have the ability to be leaders at any given time is accurate. If you want to get to the actual underlying premise that has the ability to save the world uh, as, as kind of like a, a uh, funny term that I use often, uh, it's altruism. The more in which we exhibit altruism, the better in which things become. And the more in which we exhibit altruism in accordance with what is objectively true, that's the best that we will ever be able to do as a species at large. And it's the incremental kind of like gamification and micromanagement of our application of energy and uh, what we feel like investing in that has gradually usurped that uh, previous, let's say, accolade of our ascension, and instead seen it something that we're too inclined to throw in the trash. So you're exactly spot on about the thing that we need to do, realize the leader within ourselves and help lead those who haven't seen it in themselves. And the altruism idea is interesting, because I used to say, I hate welfare, not only because it enslaves the recipient, yeah. but also because it deprives a uh, fully competent person from that moral imperative yeah. to help and yeah. from the credit that you get like that's how you get to heaven is doing that stuff and if that's not an opportunity if they steal from you and you resent it and they give it to somebody who's using it to kill themselves with drugs that's a very different scenario from altruism and love well i agree and actually to extend on the very underlying premise that you're getting to and to refer to what i was uh, alluding to previously as it being a fractal iterative process if you put in that thing which you have identified as yes it's a parasitic entity that robs people and takes away from our desire to do good for one another if you put that into place then other bigger fish parasites are going to come along and feed off of it as well so the whole fasa 56 that we saw the dod do as a mechanism of going about and pilfering from the american public trillions upon trillions of dollars and we're seeing the culling of the population in order to take away the money that was supposed to be rightfully theirs. That was never theirs. It's a way of taking money from one place under a false pretense, putting it in another, understanding that another criminal entity is going to come along later and pick up the cash flow. So to tolerate any of this is to proliferate all of it everywhere. And then we can't escape from that. What is fractal? So People fractal use that, and I never, I never really got into it. What does that mean? So think about it this way: you can take any shape, and if you reduce it to a small enough place, and then fractal is you just copy the shape, and then you copy it again and again and again and again until eventually oh, you're able okay. to create any larger shape out of it. And so you can look at a coastline. You can't necessarily take a ruler to it to measure it, but if you use a fractal algorithm, you're able to measure it exactly because you're using tiny iterations of a particular shape. So to introduce a single one of those shapes with the premise that it is fractal is to understand that it's not going to stop there. You introduce that, it's going to create other things just like it that stem out from one another until it's everywhere. It's oh like my gosh. That reminds me of when Carrie Mullis described his aha moment in inventing the PCR machine. Yeah. And he said, if you take that little thing and you just make it 
replicate itself and then you take that one and it will replicate itself again and again and again, you can build on that. And I do that when I build spreadsheets. I always like, you know, I don't just copy one thing a thousand times. I'll like copy it until it's a big, long chain. And then I'll take that chain and I'll copy it. Then I'll take them both and I'll copy them. So the philosophical overlay to what you're bringing to right now, which is the point that Kerry Mullis was making, he also said in that same basic declaration that it's a test to what the Buddha was talking about, that all is contained within. So once you understand the philosophical overlay to the uh, like the physical emergence, then you understand that they're talking about the exact same thing. And then you can look at the fear-based way in which this whole quote-unquote pandemic was brought into existence. Literally, we made ourselves sick. And so it's it's all of these different, yes. and there's way more to it than that. But like, uh, it's really, really profoundly powerful once you understand the nature of how these philosophies and these actions proliferate outward into our interactions. Right. So that was very helpful. And I will start noticing that. It's like the biter mind hop effect. I'll be like, oh, fractals, 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 fractals. Okay. So I want to get back to one thing you said before about the lies. This is why... You were getting at, I wish I remembered, wrote down the exact words that you used, but the reason I hate sunsets, right? I used to <laughs> love sunsets. I used to love them. And I, and I have a book from my first, like, really super fabulous boyfriend. Uh, and it was a book of sunsets and I just loved it. And I love, I still have the book. And now the sunsets are all effing pink because barium is pink. So they, so I see the chemtrails and there's a lot of like weird clouds and then they're pink and my kids or my husband will be like, Oh, look at that cool sunset. I'll be like, F that sunset. Fuck that. I hate barium. No more barium, you know, and I'll see it coming. I'll be like, Oh, sunset's going to be pink tonight. And so now, because I used to look at the sunset and I was talking to Michael Wan about this last time I spoke to him. Um, I used to look at the sunset and see think I was, I was trying to get an insight into the mind of God. And now I see, uh, you know, the, the mind of who was it that, who was it that the head of the CIA, James Brennan, you know, or whatever his name is, John Brennan saying like, Oh, geoengineering is only 10 million bucks a year. I'm like, you know what? I really don't do that to my sky just because it's cheap. Doesn't mean it's good. But anyway, so it's a lie and it makes my ability to try to get an insight into that which is greater than we are, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it not only prevents it, it distorts it. So I agree with that in the sense of it distorts your immediate aperture to that which is supposed to elicit itself, being the notion that God is the light alone. But you can look at uh, the etymology of the term Satan, which is Satan, which is the adversary. And so the adversary is that you which is uh, applicable to everything, uh, including ourselves. I take the old adage of the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. I add to that and I say, actually, the greatest trick the devil ever uh, pulled was convincing himself that he wasn't the devil. So it's something that works through all of us. It's something that we have the ability to enact and to reenact over and over again. The reason you're staring at a pink sunset is to piss you off so that you become the hero who overcomes whatever asshole was dumb enough to fuck with your sunset. And that's the thing that we're all feeling right now. That's what it is to turn from the, the you know, Dead Sea Scroll Egyptian mantra of set to be able to see it rise another day better than it was before. So this is our this, judgment day of sorts. This makes, this lets me be my own hero. 
Yeah, yeah, and that's really the the so the Greek uh, perspective on it is that the serpent had to become the dragon for the hero to emerge. Without the the force of evil constantly <sighs> challenging us over and over again, we're literally just sitting around twiddling our thumb. And that's why this sort of death cult proliferation has emerged from underneath all of us, and it threatens everyone we love. So that is God. It just reminded you of how important everything is to you. But you see, like when I was telling you how when I was young and like I needed direction and then I did all these crazy things and it's been a long journey and then I had teens and it was like, oh, that's a long journey. And I'm, you know, I feel like I earned, I, I, you know, I did, I walked the good path, you know, like just read the Bible. Like it doesn't say anything about fixing the sunset. It's like, this is just the way it is. So I'm, I'm not tired, but I kind of just, I just want to, I don't want to worry all the time. I'm doing my best, but I just don't want to worry all the time. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. You know what the number one causal, uh, like, let's say, variable in overall violent crime on the planet is? What? The number of people that you have in any geographic location practicing advanced meditation techniques, wishing well on behalf of the people around them. You can look at the uh, Peace Project. Inverse correlation. Well, no, no, no. Like you can use, yeah. So you can use statistical analysis over time in order to be able to establish that it's causal. And so, if but wait, one of you're saying crime is not caused by meditation. The opposite, right? No, no, yeah, yeah. So if you okay, get a okay. number, if you get a number of people yeah, together yeah, yeah. at any given juncture, uh, of practicing advanced meditation techniques. So the way that it works, it's the Maharishi effect, and it's the square root of one percent of the population at any given time who's practicing. Uh, these techniques reduces overall violent crime. And the reason we're not actually able to address any of the problems that we have is because we're still addressing them from within a materialist paradigm, which is itself a siloed byproduct of the academic infrastructure that we're secreted from or beholden to. And so it's one of those things where a lot of what it is to solve these problems is removing the impediments to peace. And those impediments are external every bit as much as they're internal. Until we get real about the various different ways in which we ourselves and and our worries are factoring into the things that we're worrying about, we're not going to be able to address any of these problems because it's an internal external phenomenon. It's really difficult, but we have to like allow ourselves to almost open up to alternatives while we're still kind of insisting that those aren't worth opening up to. It's really tough. It's, it's a bad place to be Can right now. Can I ask you specifically about that meditation? Does it have to be those specific techniques or is like the rosary or worry beads okay? Right. Okay. So a lot of what that is, is when you get into it. Um, so a good empirical basis to go about making these contentions starts with a book by Dean Radin, who wrote a book called Real Magic, and is in essence uh, saying that what magic is, is the future of what science will become. He looks at Six Sigma results that point to ubiquitous paranormal uh, phenomena, but it isn't necessarily how we think about it. And so we don't necessarily feel inclined to tap into it. But in the future from now, after we work out our our cause within our consciousness and the uh, fine refinement of their application, you can conceivably get a bunch of people together, look at a light post and turn it into a banana. You can do things yeah. like that. But the problem is, I describe it this way, it's almost as if we have a tourniquet on our arm so that we think, oh, no, that's just a dead thing that's there. You have to take the tourniquet off. You have to let the blood flow return. You have to take the muscles that have atrophy, gradually work with them. And over time, you can actually lift something powerful. So for present, what we're seeing is a byproduct of the communal way in which religion has been utilized as an occult methodology of getting us to apply our focus and our philosophy in a particular manner is it conjures into being in the external a similar state as that which is bored internally within those groups of people. And so there's, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> 
I was just going to say, like, I discovered something about prayer recently in that if someone is open to prayer, and this is actually a Catholic concept, like you have to be open to grace to receive the grace, mm -hmm. it can be very effective. If somebody is not open to it, it is not effective, which is why it's hard to pray for Absolutely. druggies. It's hard to pay for so, druggies. Yeah. So when you get to that place, you start to understand that belief is a prerequisite of arrival. It doesn't mean that because you believe you're going to arrive, it means that you have to believe and then navigate accordingly. Right. So it's the combination of the two. And specifically back to your original question, which was, does this have to be a particular advanced technique versus something that's more just kind of like ad hoc? It's different for every different application. It's a very refined occult science. So you can look at emoji, Dr. Emoji's uh, or Emoto, I don't remember which, but the Japanese scientist who was doing the work with water. And in one uh, water vessel, you'd have rice. Uh, and in the other, you'd have rice. And then every day someone would apply their conscious intention to it, either saying, I love you or I hate you. And after 30 days, the rice that was told that uh, it's loved is sweet. And the rice, uh, the rice that was told that it's hated is fermented and it's rotten. And so that gives you a very simple point of introduction to the power of disseminating our emotions. But you need to understand that amping that up to a very, very advanced application of uh, transcendental meditation, it goes to a completely other level. It's changing from what is the equivalent of a light bulb, disseminating light broadly to a laser, which focuses it very precisely. And so each of them has an effect. And the question is, how do we navigate the effects that they're having on all of us? Oh, yeah, by the way, they just turned CERN back on. So there's a lot going on. I was thinking it when you were talking, I was like, that sounds like CERN. Yeah, yeah that sounds like... The deliberate muddling of our ability to do the thing that I'm describing. And the more in which they they screw with it, the more in which they screw with us, and then we lose the belief uh, and we lose the attainment. Yeah, interesting. Well, there's a lot, even more implications. Oh, oh yeah. To oh, yeah. all of that, but okay. So I want to get back down to earth for a minute and ask what you think about what. Um, so I look at like the Trump phenomenon. I feel like I look. I I was so happy when Ron Paul was going to colleges and kids were burning dollar bills and uh. people were, you know, giving him standing ovations for rattling off some economic truths that were consistent with our foundational principles in this country. And I was like, wow, like there, there was a legacy that has been handed down person to person over, over 200 years. And, and our original understanding of what that contract was about, even though it may never have been meant to be that way, maybe Lysander Spooner wise, like the constitution maybe wasn't meant to be, it doesn't matter. It's, it didn't hold up to the bargain, but we, as the other party to the contract, so-called had an idea of what it was and we kept that alive and therefore we were entitled to it. We never gave up on our right to enforce that contract. And Ron Paul tapped into that. It was amazing to me. And that was, I would say, a really powerful moment and it would it could have been a turning point for this country and i think that the powers that be very cleverly redirected that into the trump phenomenon where they made it um very shallow very uh rather than ideological they made it identity based they made it angry it made fight back it made i can use the power of government for good and then now we have folding in the roe versus wade stuff the gun laws um a lot of the stuff about critical race theory and transgenderism to children that's just way too young for even to, it will distort their thinking about a lot of things when like, I don't know if you ever saw a child traumatized by sexual information. Absolutely real. It's really messed up. Hmm. So I feel like they're doing stuff that's really polarizing, obviously. And, uh, 
you know, maybe even to the point where maybe they're looking for secession or civil war or just unrest to increase the power, but there's something very polarizing energy wise. There's just a lot of negative energy everywhere. And I see it in this polarization in this country. Do you have any impression as to like the bigger picture there or what's the takeaway for you? Oh, yeah, no, I completely agree with your assessment and insofar as how they'll pick up on a particular um, evolutionary course of our perceivable natural emergence of emotion in response to something, and then they'll transmute that and take it in a completely different way in order to then have the thing that was the vestige of our hope feed on us later on. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a calculative method, almost like Machiavellian refinement of how it, you break down the plasticity of a people so that you can rebuild them the way that you want. And I'll use the metaphor again of a cooking process. And that's if you look at the way in which the flavor of cheese comes to be what it is, it's microbes and organisms and a scarcity of uh, their food vying for supremacy over and over and over and over again, killing each other in mass to be able to sustain themselves. And then once it's done, it's a particular flavor. So they have to do these things. Wow, that's a good one. That's a good way. They're making cheese. We're looking what they're making. Oh, I've, I've been to culinary, yeah, I've been to culinary school, all that kind of stuff. But it's also the power and, and insight of food. If you look at all of the various different culinary influences of war, all of the way in which like the most uh, violent uh, tribes in human history, they ate potatoes because it would spike their insulin and then it would crash again. If you look at the dietary staples and the evolution of war all over the planet, it actually speaks a great deal to how integrated we are, how divided we are, all of these kind of things. So yeah, it's, it's a good metaphor in a variety of ways. Yeah, I think that, that that we can keep that going over time as I I mean I I always wonder some some of the things you say you were saying like about actually manifesting change outside your body especially with communal whatever. I was thinking, wow, that's one of those things that I had this thought a couple of years ago like there's stuff so far into like I didn't know I didn't know like there's mind-boggling concepts that I haven't conceived of at all like i'm i feel like i'm getting old but there's definitely going to be stuff that like wow i didn't even think of that you know and i feel that way about what you just said i also feel that way about sauerkraut (laughs) i feel like that i'm like wow food should be alive wow like that is great oh my gosh i feel so much better now like that could explain a lot you know and organ meats and whatever but i mean the idea that food could be alive that we were evolved like or whatever um over the years trained to this much more complicated food scene i feel like not only can you make metaphor out of that it's quite literally like it will it will make you live or make you die and it's uh it goes to who we are and what we what we thrive on and how deprived we've been of that or even just the information of that I, i grew up where eggs were bad eggs were bad could you imagine thank God, I never listened to that. I, I agree with your assessment completely. I'm sorry that eggs were so bad in the households you came from. Uh, but it is one of those things where, like earlier, I was describing metaphors and iris. So it's directly tied to the truth that's getting in. And the better the metaphor, the more in which you're able to use it to contextualize the truth. They're not separate from one another. They're the same thing. So exactly right. And that it's really interesting to look at the the mechanistic manner in which we have been stripped from our cells and our cells have themselves been turned into our cells, as in those that imprison us rather than allow us to elicit the, the spirit of life. And that's, a, once again, a manner in which is a variety of different tiny things that cumulatively come together so that we identify more as the machine. And when we do that, we are more uh, permissible of it 
let's say, entering into us in any number of different ways. And so too, are we more mechanical? That's what the cybernetic is. And it's like all of these different things, including what we eat, because if you give people more synthetic food, they become more synthetic. They aren't as robust in their immune process. And it's all of this stuff built on top of another. So cells and cells are fractals. Yeah, it's a way to think about it. And that, that'll give you, uh, that will allude to the path that you need to take to find your way out of whatever prison is you've been buried in. And this applies to all of us because it's coming to that objective understanding at the basis of everything, building off of that. And then you can very much realize the, let's say, enlightening of yourself and so too of your genome. Because as you go through this internally, you start to manifest within yourself greater and greater abilities. Patenting the genes, man. Ugh. I can't deal with that. They, the GMO stuff, they patent human genes that belong to human beings. And also, anyway, but what I want to ask you is I, uh, I got through my short list. I didn't get through the 50, but I got through, I think, the 10. <laughs> and I wanted to know if there was anything that you wanted to make sure we talked about or got to or even just direct people to, I'm not asking to rap, but I did want to make sure that if there was something specific that we didn't hit, I want to hit it. My whole thing, and I think we're basically on this page of this, is that a lot of what we're observing with the COVID phenomena is not a singular event. It's a variety of different convergent phenomena that are being put under the same diagnostic umbrella, equivalent to and in great excess of what we observed through the whole AIDS epidemic and how that was something that was championed for federal funding and also steering uh, philanthropies and a variety of other things in around the, the world. Future. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what's going on right now. And it's really difficult to be able to go out there and see all of us siloed sort of in our own respective interpretations of it is a chimeric uh, fair and cleavage site interjection that's on this next level of or that's a red herring fallacy that's put out so that we look at it that way and continue to apply our focus in that manner. And we aren't willing to enter into the germ theory versus terrain theory. And we aren't willing to talk about action at a distance consequence. And if you want the simplest interpretation of the observe of what we've observed happen, it's this. Imagine if a bunch of stupid jerks got together and they said, we're going to take everyone's smiles away. And they put masks on all of us <laughs> and we've been walking around not seeing other smiles. What does an idea as simple as that take smiles away from the world? Would that itself account for COVID? Until we're at a point where we can ask questions like that without thinking of them as inherently ridiculous, we're not actually looking at the observable phenomena for what it is objectively. We continue to project our subjective interpretation onto it, insisting that that's the truth at the end of the day. It's very complicated. And the germ it's, theory, it's yeah. The germ theory, train theory thing is driving me crazy because oh, yeah. I absolutely was completely like not. I saw no evidence of germ theory. It's just a theory, whatever. I saw more evidence of train theory. And then I did read about them trying to make vaccines contagious. And I was reading yeah. some, I stumbled upon some patents from the eighties of bioweapons. And I was like, they maybe, maybe they, they like made germ theory real because like, I don't know. I, I kind of well, see evidence of it now, but only in the bioweapon context. Yeah. So insofar as the phenomena, I agree. We are seeing what appears to be evidence of that. But this is what I uh, get to. I think I might have said it before we started recording. A lot of this is things that zip together. And so it could be more that 
Because if you look at the the statistics from 2020, they weren't uh, sig- significant enough to qualify as a pandemic. Then you go a year ahead and we've seen the vaccine and all of a sudden, yeah, those statistics are actually there. We're actually killing people. So it's the kind of thing where you look at the overlap between the un, uh, un not unveiling, but the uh, emergence of 5G with what we then identify as illness. But at the exact same time, you can take that a step further and be, well, that isn't necessarily illness because the people who are in those 5G regions are getting the narrative more often. And if you're getting the narrative more often, then it's going to emerge in a psychosomatic capacity wherein potentially we have the ability to factor into the way in which our minds have been poisoned to then poison our bodies. So these are sequential steps that are not removed from one another. And so let's say that you have an interaction between 5G and the vaccine. Let's say that we have an interaction between the things that they're spraying into the air and the 5G. What we're seeing is a zipper of things. And so that creates the illusion that it is the more simple phenomena of which we then gravitate towards Oxum Razor style. But Oxum, Oxum's Razor doesn't apply with explicit deception. And that's what this is. This is a black op. So we have You're to right. factor in the insanity right. of all of yeah. these different things accounting for a more simple phenomena. That's a good point. I don't like Hanlon's Razor either, which says uh, don't attribute to malice anything you can attribute to incompetence i'm like that is my the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing yeah, you yeah. he was incompetent yeah. <laughs> yeah. he's like, like look at the look yeah. at the faa those yeah. planes don't crash they yeah. don't want them to crash so they don't crash they might start wanting them to crash now but they know what they're doing wow so interesting well obviously we could probably if anyone ever wants to do a 24-hour marathon charity thing i think you've got your your duo (laughs) (laughs) because we could take any one of those minutes and like you know bloop and then make it into an hour like i like what you do that on your show on your on conspiracy synergies like you'll you'll you can watch the whole thing or you can just watch the clips of it i think that's very considerate of you well, I haven't clipped the rest, of it, but uh, that's because it, it takes so long to do this and you're trying to give it to people in the way that they want. And it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. No, so, I mean, you can't. No, a little just do a little bit. It was plenty. It's plenty. Like, you know, I, yeah. I probably didn't get through all of it. So, you don't know, you don't put pressure on yourself. It's but what, you, what you're doing is really cool and interesting. And as people can probably tell from our conversation, like the pacing is uh, very brisk, but. It's uh, consumable, and I really like it. I think there's a, a definitely a place for it. And I have a lot of respect for people who create something, you know, with the research, with the knowledge that has some structure, that has some um, art. Uh, so I, I really enjoy that, and I think it's a unique offering. And if you want to tell people about it in your own words or how they can get to it or where, where you're going with it, then this is the time. Sure thing. So I'm an artist and I, uh, as I spoke earlier, I always focus on controversy and I try and figure out a way to transmute animosity into something that we're able to come to common ground and see eye to eye once again, because without that, we're at each other's throats. And so I've been studying uh, the whole alternative media conspiratorial realm for about 15 years, and I wanted to apply my skill sets as an artist to what I observed to be missing from the phenomena at large, which was something that was encouraging and welcoming for newbies while at the same time, including a lot of those Easter eggs that make it delectable for the people who have been in it for a very long time, such as Monica. And that's why we appreciated all of the different pictures and things that I have popping up throughout watching the show. And so it's 
a show that's designed to be used as an outreach tool for your friends and family who are beginning to approach an aptitude or receptiveness to what's actually going on and the complexity of it. And it isn't all about me. I'm more using my talents to showcase everybody because that's what's really going on right now. There is so much happening that without each other doing this deep dive research, we're screwed. And so I very much rely on the alternative media and I tip my hat to them and... Sorry, Sorry. someone needs to be picked up from school. It's cool, it's cool. Yes, you tip your hat. Yes, yes, I agree. I I like to be a resource for other podcasters and stuff too. Like, just don't don't redouble the effort. Yeah. That's why you're one of the alternative media's best, and you're in the fourth episode when I go into Cecil Rhodes, and I I include you in that list. Oh, I can't wait. I've been Rhodes pilled, so (laughs) I definitely want to check that out. That's awesome. Fantastic. So I think your website is conspiracysynergy.com, right? Yeah, and that's, that's where you can get Odyssey, BitChute, all the connections there, including clips. It's very, it's very easy to navigate. I like it a lot. Yeah, that's my that's the Conspiracy Synergy website, conspiracysynergy.com. My personal website as an artist is teace.ca, T-E-A-C-E dot C-A. And that's a lot of different stuff that mostly I've given away for free. It all touches on controversy. They're all very important subjects. And it's one of those things where if you don't want to go to Hollywood anymore, there are independent artists out there who are actually worth uh, checking out. How can people communicate with you? Do you use social at all or do you, you know, email? I primarily use Twitter to study the zeitgeist and the bot farm. It's like, hmm, what's the bot farm up to? I've been shadow banned. So it's just me talking to people I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the thing. Like I said to my son, I was like, you use Twitter? He said, no, it's a cesspool. And I said, really? I I know a lot of really nice people there. He said, that's because you've been shadow banned. You don't know what it's really like. Like, oh, okay. But like my friends are cool. (laughs) So I'm at Monica Perez show. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, I think it's at T Snyder or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even know well enough to know my own Twitter handle, but for the most oh part, my I'm, gosh. I'm easy get with to the get. program. Oh man. I'm, my whole program is the, the hermetic tradition and gnosis, you know, and that's a right. tough pill to swallow in the contemporary. Like, wow. All right. Well, we'll have to dig into that solely maybe the next time, but you would like my Anything. friend, Bob, you should talk to my friend, Bob, but I, I don't know if you do interviews. Um, he doesn't do interviews, so you'd have to find maybe I'll have a round table between you two guys. Sometime. Do that. Invite me to however many round tables you want. Any number of 24 hour, like fundraisers for people <laughs> I'm down for all of it. I very much appreciate the humor and the depth of insight that you bring. So thanks for doing what you do. Right back at you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs>